Chapter One of the Heart of Hyacinth by Yonoto Watana. The city of Sendai on the northeastern coast of Japan raises its head, queenly wise towards the sun, as though conscious of its own matchless beauty, and that which envelops it on all sides. Here, where the waters flow into the Pacific, the surges are never heard. Neptune seems to have forgotten his anger in the presence of such peerless beauty. Near to Sendai, there is a bay called Matsushima. Here, nature has flung out her favors with more than lavish hand. For throughout the bay, she has scattered jewel-like rocks whose white sides rise above the waters and whose surface gives nutrition to the graceful pine trees which find their roots within the stone. Near to a thousand rocks, they are said to number, and save for the one called Harakajima, or Naked Island, all are crowned with pine trees. The historic temple, Uiganji, is situated at the base of a hill, a few cho from the beach. About the temple are the tombs and sepulchres of the great Data family, once the feudal lords of Sendai. There is a huge image of Data Masumani, whose far-seeing mind sent an envoy to Rome early in the seventeenth century. The sepulchres are, for the most part, in the hollowed caves of the range of rocky hills behind the temples. Nameless flowers, large and brilliant in color, bloom about the tombs of these proud slumbering lords. Mount Tomi bends its noble head in homage toward the glories of a past generation. The air is very still and cool. Silence enshrines and deifies all. The inhabitants of Sendai and a little fishing village in the northern shore of the bay are simple, gentle folk, as though affected by the slumberous beauty of the hills and mountains hedging them in upon all sides. These let their life glide by with slow and sweetly sleepy tread. Not even the shock of the restoration had brought this region's people into that prophetic regard for the future which pervaded all other parts of the empire. The change-compelling progress which pressed in upon all sides seemed not as yet to have laid its withering finger upon fair Matsushima. Like their home, the inhabitants clung to their hermit existence. When an English ship having ploughed its way through the waters of the Pacific, sent out its men and boats to take the bay's soundings, the people were not alarmed, but greatly mystified. The strange white men made their way in their smaller boats to the shore. A missionary and his wife were landed. A little home, and a small hill situated only a short distance from the temples of Ganji, they built for themselves. Afterwards, native artisans raised for them a larger structure, where for many years they patiently taught the gospel of Jesus Christ. The people gradually learned to love and reverence their pale teachers. There came a time when the little band, which had at first gone desultorily and curiously to the mission house, began to see what the strangers termed the light. Then the Christian church in faraway England enrolled a little list of converts to their religion. The missionary grew old and white and bent, his gentle wife passed away. He lingered wistfully, a strangely isolated, though beloved, figure in the little community. Then came a second visitation from an English vessel. Sailors and officers lolled about the town by day and rioted by night. Some of them wooed the dark-eyed daughters of the town, but to leave them. One there was, however, who brought a girl, a shrinking yet trustful girl, to the old missionary on the hill, and there in the shabby old mission house, 
solemn and beautiful ceremony of the Christian marriage service was performed over their heads. That was ten years before. At first the Englishman had seemed settled in his adopted land, as he loved to call it. The place appealed to his artistic perceptions. The Mecca of all his hopes, he called it. Why should he return to the world of cold and strife? Here were peace, rest, and love unbounded. But before the close of the second year of their union, an event occurred which shook the stranger suddenly into life's vivid reality. A great duty thrust itself in his track. Not for himself, but for another, must he turn his back upon the land of love. A son had been born to him in the season of little heat. So the Englishman crushed to his breast his foreign wife and child, and with reiterated promises of a speedy return, he left them. Letters in those days travelled slowly from England to Japan. Sometimes those addressed to the little town of Sendai remained for weeks in the offices at the open ports. Sometimes they travelled hither and thither from one port to another, the stupid indifference of officials scarcely troubling itself to send them to their proper destination. But finally, after many months, the little wife and mother in Sendai held between her trembling hands an English letter. It had come in a very large envelope, and there were several bulky enclosures. Neatly folded documents they were, tied with red tape. There was also another letter, shorter than the one she held in her hand, and written in a different form. He could not even read her letter, though she did not doubt from whom it had come. Happy, she pressed her precious package to her lips and breast. She believed that the strangely printed papers within the envelopes, similar in her eyes to the many English papers he had always about him, were merely other forms of his epistle of love. The woman waited, with a divine patience, for the return of the old missionary from a little journey inland. She watched for him, watched ceaselessly, constantly, and when he had returned, she dressed the little Kamazawa in fresh, sweet-smelling garments and carried him with her papers to the mission house. Why detail the pain of that interview? The papers and one of the letters, it is true, were indeed from her lord, but they were sent by another, a stranger. The Englishman had died. Died in what he termed a foreign country, since his home was by her side. In his last hours he had striven to write to her and instruct her in the course she must take in the years to come, when he could not be by her as her loving guide. Madame Aoi meekly followed the counsel of the aged missionary. Under his guidance, childlike and with unquestioning faith, he studied unceasingly the English language and the Christian faith. If the old missionary had at first marvelled at the calm which settled upon her after that one wild outcry, when first she had heard the dread tidings of her husband, he was not long in discovering that her passiveness was but an outer mask to veil the anguish of a broken heart, and to give her that strength which must overcome the weakness which would be the doom of her hopes, for Aoi was not left without some hope in life. Her lord, in departing, had set upon her an injunction, a duty. This it was her task to perform. Once that was accomplished, perhaps the strain might lessen. Meanwhile, tirelessly, ceaselessly, she studied. She had the natural gift of intelligence and the advantage of having spent two full years with her husband. Hence it was not long before she mastered the language, and if she spoke it brokenly and even haltingly, she wrote and read accurately. 
to the little Kamazawa, who spoke only in English, she kept him jealously apart from the villages, and taught his little tongue to shape and form the words of his father's language. Some day, little one, she would say, you will become great big man, then you will cross those seas, you will become great lord also at that England, so it is the will of thy august father. Chapter 2 It was the season of seed rain. The country was green and fragrant, and the crops thirstily absorbed the rain. The villagers sat at their thresholds, some of them even indolently lounging in the open, unmindful or perhaps enjoying the seething rain, an antidote for the heat, which was somewhat sweltering for the season. Children were playing in the street, nimbly jumping over the puddle-ponds, or climbing with the agility of monkeys, the trees that lined the streets, and about whose boughs they hung in various attitudes of daring delight. One small boy had climbed to the very tip of a bamboo, and there he clung by his feet, swaying with the shakings of the slender tree, and the motion of those below him, far below him. It was not often that the son of Madame Aoi was permitted such absolute freedom. Indeed, it was only upon those occasions when Komazawa, momentarily blind to the reproach of his mother's sad eyes, literally thrust away the bonds which seemed to hold and chain him to their quiet household, and burst out and beyond their reach. Surely, at the tip of this long, perilous bamboo, he was quite beyond the reach of the little Madame Aoi and her old servant Mume. But even in his present lofty position, Yomazawa had kept his eyes from the possible glimpse of his mother. His feet clung to the tree only because his hands were engaged in covering his ears. Yet even in the open, Komazawa was alone. The neighbor's children played in little bodies and groups together, and Komazawa, from his perch, watched them with the same ardent wistfulness with which he was wont to regard them from the door of his little isolated home. Old Mume was angry. Her voice had become hoarse, and she was tired of her position in the rain, for the bamboo gave but scant shelter. She shook the tree angrily. Do not so, entreated the gentle Aoi. See how the tree bends. Take care lest it become angry with us, and vent its vengeance upon my son. But pray you, good Mume, return to the home and give food and succor to our honourable guest. As Mume shuffled off, her heavy clogs clicking against the pavement, Aoi called up entreatingly to the truant. Ah, oh, coma, coma, son, do pray come down. But Koma's hour, with head thrown backward, was whistling to the clouds. He was very well content, and it pleased him much to be wet through. How long he sat there, whistling softly strange airs, and imagining wild and fanciful things he could not have told, since the passage of time in these days of freedom, was a thing which he noted little. Gradually he became aware that the rain was becoming colder, and the sky had darkened. From his hour looked downward, there was nothing but darkness beneath him. He shivered and shook his little body and head the hair of which was weighted with rain. Komazawa began to slide downward, feeling the way with his feet and hands. It was quite a journey down. In the darkness he had knocked his little shins against out-jutting broken boughs. He landed with both feet upon something palpitating and soft, something that caught its breath in a sigh, then enclosed him in its arms. Komazawa, guilty but not altogether tamed, spoke no words to his mother. He stood stiffly and quietly still, while she felt his wetness with her hands. But he threw off the cape in which she endeavoured to wrap him, 
who was obliged to stand on tiptoe to put it back around his mother, and as this was an undignified position, his bravado broke down. Gradually he nestled up against her, and, strange marvel in Japan, these two embraced and kissed each other. After a while, as they trudged silently down the sweet homeward, Komazawa inquired in a sharp little voice as he looked up apprehensively at his mother. And the honourable stranger, mother! Aoi hesitated. The hand about her son trembled somewhat. His thin little fingers clutched it almost viciously. He flushed angrily. Why you not answer me? he asked with peevishness. I have not seen the honourable one, said Aoi gently. Pa! snapped the boy. No, certainly, and we do not wish to see her. We do not like such bold intrusion. Nay, son, she reproved, we must not so regard it. Let us remember the words of the good master, the august missionary. What words? inquired Comer tartly. Why, his excellency does not even know of the coming of the woman, since he has gone three days from Sendai now. Ah, but my son, do you not remember that he taught us to treat with kindness the stranger within our gates? Comer made a sound of disapproval, his little ill-tempered face puckered in a frown. After a moment he inquired again, But where is the woman, mother? Ayoi regarded her small son almost apologetically. He is within our humble house, she replied. Koma pulled his hand from hers with a jerk. For a time he walked beside her in silence. He was strangely old for his years, and already he showed the inheritance of his father's pride. Mother, he said, we do not wish the stranger to disturb our home. My father would not have permitted it. We are happy alone together. What do we want with this woman stranger? But my son, she is very ill. She should have stayed at the honourable tavern. We do not keep a hostelry. Oi, sighed. Well, she said hopefully, let us bear with her for a little while, and afterwards we will turn her out, quickly finished the boy. We will entreat her to remain, said Aoi. It would be proper for us to do so, but the stranger will not be lacking in all courtesy. She will not remain. They had reached their home. Now they paused on the threshold, the mother regarding the son somewhat appealingly, and he with his sulky head turned from her. Aoi pushed the sliding doors apart. A gust of wind blew inward, flaring up the light of the dim mandon and then extinguishing it. The house was in darkness. Suddenly a voice, a piercing shrill voice, rang out of the silent house. The light! The light! it cried. Oh, it's gone! Gone! Comer clutched his mother's hand with a sudden tense fear. The light! he repeated. Quickly, mother! The honourable one fears the darkness! Quickly! The light! <laughs>